let's open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3. As today we look at the qualifications of a bishop, also known as a pastor, an overseer, or an elder. Because we read in verse 1, it says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. It's been a blessing going through First Timothy, learning the conduct, uh, the creed really of the church and the responsibility we have. Uh, I, I'm so blessed um, learning with you guys. We come now to this important place in which uh, Paul gives to Timothy observations, qualifications of uh, a bishop, also known as a pastor, overseer, and elder. And it's an important, important lesson for us. It's important for us and for a number of reasons. Um, number one, for those of us that are pastors, myself, we have other pastors here at the church. Uh, this is the calling for us uh, to live these things out. For those of us that are leaders and we're appointing other men to be pastors, these are the things that we're looking for. For you in the congregation, even though you might not be the one you know, making the decision, okay, who's going to be the pastor, when you know the power of God and what the Bible teaches and requires for pastors, you as a congregation, you hold them to these things. And then I think for all of us here and looking at these 16 qualities, uh, whether you're called to leadership, even men, women, it doesn't matter. There are things here that we learn and we take to heart because this is really the way that God wants us to be as a people. And so we begin in verse 1 with this faithful saying, uh, the second of five faithful sayings in the pastoral epistles. Uh, and it's not just, you know, a nice thing. It's not just a, you know, a true and trustworthy word. It's a really a doctrinal declaration. In this case, observations and qualifications for those individuals who aspire to be a pastor, who are looking to be a leader, and we need to know these things. You know, how important it is, and I, and I think you guys know, you know, if we have men of God who love the Lord, who are in the Word, who are in prayer, who are living a life of obedience, not just actors, not just guys that are, that are phonies, not just guys that are in it for the money or for the wrong reason, but who are truly called by God, who love the Lord and love the people, what a difference it makes when those men are our godly men. And so, you know, in looking at this, it's so important for us to really know the responsibilities and the roles we have with these titles. We have tasks that have been given to us. Who can be a pastor? Can it just be anybody? 
You know, and I think that in the church today, I think there's really been a watering down of the expectations and the qualifications. You know, we got to know it's not just somebody who, you know, everybody likes, the nice guy with the right look. Oh, he looks like a pastor, huh? Yeah. It's not just somebody who's a good talker or just a good teacher. It's not just somebody who's graduated from seminary or Bible college, maybe even at the top of their class. That doesn't make them a pastor. There's so much more to it. As a matter of fact, as we read through our text today, we're going to see 16, maybe 15 qualifications here in verses 2 through 7. But the interesting thing is, before Paul gets there, notice again in verse 1, he says, This is a faithful saying. It's a doctrinal declaration that if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. You know, before we get to the qualification, we see something interesting, and that is that, you know, let's just say you're here today, and, and I think that would be so cool, and, and you want to you be a pastor. You have that fire. You have that desire within you to be a bishop, an overseer, an elder, a pastor. And Paul is saying, you want to know something? That's a good thing because it's a good work. You know, and when we look at this, and I think there's so many things to, to see, you know, I pray that if you have that, that calling or that fire, that you would know the beauty of it. The NIV says this is an individual who sets his heart on it. The NLT says this is somebody who wants to be a pastor you see, normally when God calls a man to be a bishop, an overseer, an elder, a pastor, normally there will be that fire. There will be that desire within him. And I just got to tell you that I praise God for that. I praise God when a man has that desire to be a pastor. Because when that desire is from the Lord, you know, then God's going to do a great work when you, you know, follow the call. You know, because the bottom line is today not a lot of people are signing up to be pastors. Not a lot of people are lining up to be pastors for many reasons. And yet the church is in desperate need of men of God willing to leave their nets and follow Jesus Christ and to serve him wholeheartedly. You know, over the years I've seen some men who, you know, I'm really convinced they were called, but they were not willing to do what they needed to do in order to answer that call. I think I've seen that many times. Many men who are called to be pastors, you know, and it's hard, you know, because, you know, you're probably not going to get paid a lot of money. You know, you're probably not going to have, you know, all the things that you want. You're going to work many hours. There's no such thing as a day off. There's a tremendous amount of pressure in being a pastor. Lives are in the balance in the decisions that you're making. The devil is after you. The devil is after your family. It's so much easier not to answer the call of being a pastor. And so, you know, God's calling and it's just ringing. And so many times, so many men are just clinging to the things of this world when the church is suffering the way it's suffering because we are in desperate need of men of God willing to take that step of faith. It's so cool when God puts that fire, when God puts that desire in someone to be uh, a pastor. Now he uses a different he word here in verse one. This is a faithful saying: if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. And so, what do you think of when you hear the word bishop? How many of you here think of chess? Just out of curiosity, chess game, right? 
All right, maybe you're thinking of the liturgical denominations that are out there. Bishop, interesting. You know, but what we find right here is the Greek word is the word episkope. It comes from two Greek words, epi and skopo, which means over uh, or upon. And skopo is where we get that word look. That's hence our word telescope, microscope. And so this is an individual who is looking over, watching over the church. That's their call. That's their role and responsibility. And, and so what we find here is this an interesting position of leadership, but in the New Testament, it's used interchangeably with other Greek words to describe the overall position of the servant leaders in the church. As a matter of fact, I think it'd be good to go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And remember, Paul the Apostle is on his way back to Jerusalem. And he doesn't have time to stop in Ephesus, but he wants to talk to the leaders there. And so we read in verse 17, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. The elders of the church. Now the Greek word there is presbuteros. And the elders are men who are usually older, men who have an element of maturity. Uh, they're the leaders, right? But if you follow the text down in verse 28, he's still speaking to the same guys. And he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so they're called elders in verse 17, presbyteros. They're called overseers in verse 28. Now, the Greek word there is the same word back in 1 Timothy 3, episkopos, overseers. See, it's a description of these men who have these responsibility to lead the church. But notice what Paul tells them there in verse 28. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to do what? To shepherd. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so the word shepherd is that Greek word poimen. And so it means pastor, same thing. You've got the overseers, you've got the elders, you've got these guys that are called the shepherd, or to do what? To pastor to pastor God's flock. And that's what we find when we read the Bible. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.11, and he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, some pastors and teachers. If you go over to 1 Peter chapter 5, you see the same thing, how this Greek words are used interchangeably in 1 Peter Chapter 5, Peter says, The elders who are among you, I exhort. There's that Greek word, uh, presbyteros, I who am a fellow elder. So Peter included himself among them. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that you will be, will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. There's that, that responsibility. And so when you look at the different words, you might wonder then why are there different words? And I think the reason being is because there's just different 
elements of the responsibility. We're going to see later that a pastor shouldn't be a novice. It shouldn't be a new believer. It should be someone who has an element of spiritual maturity, hence the word elder. And then when you look at the overall responsibility that a pastor has, we saw that in Acts 20, 28, to shepherd. What does that mean? The pastor's role, you know, to shepherd is to feed the flock, the word of God. Right to lead the flock to green pastures, to protect the flock. You know, what defense mechanisms do sheep have uh, against wolves? And you guys know the answer is none. What can a sheep do? If a wolf comes after a sheep, what can a sheep do? Nothing. I mean, it, it can't run. It can't run very fast. It can't bite. Have you seen the teeth of the sheep? They can't bite. It can't really kick. It can't scratch. It can't do anything. Sheep are great evidence that evolution is impossible. The only way a sheep can survive is with a shepherd. Our great shepherd is Jesus Christ. He's the shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. He loves the sheep. He bought the sheep with his own blood. And he has under shepherds. And it's a heavy responsibility that unfortunately, I think uh, many times, and I, maybe I, I, I might even underestimate it, but man, I pray that I never, ever would again, that this is a heavy responsibility we have to take care and tend to and love God's people. You know, sometimes you get sheep and, you know, you guys are generally speaking, you're pretty good, but, you know, you don't tell them what they want to hear and they think you're against them. And you're not against them. You just have to give them God's word because you love them and you know what's best for them. But a lot of times they resist those things, but we have that responsibility. And so what we find back in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is when he's referring to, to this you know, individual, this man who wants to be a bishop. He's referring to a man who's an overseer, an elder, a pastor. And if this is your destiny then, you know, it makes sense that it would be your desire. And in such cases, Paul says that it's a good desire because of the fact that it's a good work. You know, just as a quick side note here, you guys, I, I don't know, I don't want to overdo this, but man, I, I'll tell you what, I really believe that, that God leads us, and God made us to do things. You know, I try to tell young people especially, stay on track with the Lord. Stay in love with Jesus Christ. You know, don't go to plan B or plan C. Don't mess up your life. You know, because I think that God made us all to be different parts of the body. And even in your vocation, you know, I try to tell people, if possible, man, may God bless you in doing something that you were made to do. And some of you here, you were made to be pastors. And God put that desire in you. God put that fire in you because it's a destiny that you have. And if that's your desire, then Paul is telling Timothy, man, I, I want you to know that it's a good desire because of the fact that it's a good work. You know, there has to be a desire. But I also need to say this to you guys. Over the years, we've also seen that there are some who are not called to be a pastor but they do covet the position, right? And sometimes we see it out there, we see it a lot of times on television, that they are there 
for the wrong reason, huh? A lot of those guys are there for the wrong reason. They want titles and tasks and treasures. They want to reign and they want to rule and they want riches. Let me tell you something. If God's called you into the ministry, especially into the pastorate ministry, you can never go in for yourself. There's got to be a calling. And you've got to be willing to lay down your life. Your family's going to have to pay the price. There will be sacrifices made along the way. You've got to do it for the Lord. And you've got to remember Jeremiah 45.5. When Jeremiah spoke to Baruch, and Baruch you know, was interested in ruling and reigning in riches and titles and tasks and treasures, and Jeremiah told to them, he said, Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. So it can never be, well, I want to do this for myself. I think even a good verse that is kind of in the same league is in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4, because the call of the Old Testament priest is similar to the call of the New Testament pastor. And, and there in Hebrews it says, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. And it's hard, you know, even Warren Wiersbe says it's hard to, to just make sure that your motives are absolutely pure, but you just check your heart, and you just recheck your heart. And if it's a desire within you, and if it's a fire in you, and if you feel like God is calling you forward in that, then you know what? You just continue to go forward, and you ask God, Lord, show me. And it'll be confirmed, I think, through the people around you, through the congregation and the work that God does through your life. And then you begin to look at the list of qualifications and you begin to realize, you know what, this is not some easy thing. God's called pastors to be examples. God's called us to be holy. And as I was going through the list right here, to be honest with you guys, I was like, man, Lord, you know, I, I don't got it all together. I, I don't. Um, but I want to. And, Lord, I would maybe rather have someone else teach this text. Maybe we can have a guest speaker today or something, you know. <laughs> and the Lord said, no, you're going to have to endure this. Look what he says verse in verse 2. A bishop then must be blameless. He's got to be blameless. Uh, the NIV says above reproach. And the word literally speaks of something that you can't lay hold of. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that an individual is never accused of things. We know that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. But it simply means that those accusations can't be proven. It can't stick. Hence, you can't lay hold of this man. You know, we're not speaking of someone who's sinless, because the only sinless one is Jesus. But we are speaking of someone who is blameless. That when you look in their life, if someone was to try to take you down, they wouldn't be able to because you are a man of integrity. You see? What we find right here, he begins the list with something really interesting. A bishop then must be blameless. And, and really, uh, they say that the blameless now goes over the next 15 qualifications. And again, I'm not really clear on that, but it says he's got to be the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Literally referring to a one-woman man. Now, there are different interpretations on this. 
Some even say that you have to be married in order to be a pastor. Again, you've got to be the husband of one wife. The Eastern Orthodox Church holds this view, but I think it goes beyond what Paul is teaching here. And also in 1 Corinthians 7, he said some have the gift of singleness. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 that some are born eunuchs, some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. So I don't really think that's what Paul is sharing here. We know Paul himself was single. Some say that it simply refers to the fact that he can't have multiple wives at the same time. This is known as polygamy. And while this is true, you know, if you were to go and you start a church or you be a missionary in some other lands, this is something that you might have to deal with. And you have to tell them the Bible says that if you want to be a pastor, you only can be married to one wife at a time. You can't be a polygamist, right? And it's true, but it's probably not the main point. I think if we continue to study at the other views, we kind of begin to get close some say that the one-woman man is basically a man who's never been divorced, especially as a Christian. You know, even if he had biblical grounds, there are some who would teach, you know what, you know, he can do other things and praise God for that. But as far as being the pastor, being there, that example, that individual, it would disqualify him from that place in the church. Warren Wiersbe holds to that view and others. And although I'm not really sure, I don't really lean in that direction completely when the grounds are biblical, I do think I need to say this, that it's tragic. It's tragic today to, way, to see the way some men, even pastors, they get a divorce, they move on with their lives, and they barely even blink an eye when it comes to the ministry or the ministry of being a pastor. You know, there's one pastor today, and you guys, if I told you his name, I'm sure you'd all hear of him. He's very well known. He's all over the radio. He's all over the television. He writes multiple books. And his wife, you know, left him a while ago. They got a divorce. And he says, you know, well, my, you know, my wife left me. 1 Corinthians 7 says I have biblical grounds for divorce. But, but let me ask you a question, buddy. Why did she leave you? And so, you know, ain't no thing. I'm going to be back in the saddle again. And so are you cool with everybody else doing that? You're the example in many ways. And, and so this right here would say to him, I'm sorry, love you. You can do other things, but maybe not being a pastor. You know, I think sometimes a divorce might disqualify a man, not from all ministry, but from the calling of being a pastor where we're called to teach and reach people with the example we live. And here it is, you guys, to do what we need to do in order to keep our marriages alive. I mean, I, if I had to ask you guys, I would say there are probably many marriages here that are struggling. And if you wanted to, you can just go on with your life, neglect your marriage. Next thing you know, your wife or your husband, they drift away. And you're, you've got blood on your hands, too. No, we can't do that. We have to be a model. We have to say, hey, let's work these things out. If necessary, I'll step down from ministry for a while, and I'll focus on my wife. I will focus on my marriage. I will rescue my family. But we live in a society today where that doesn't even matter. Guy's got a divorce. He's a good teacher. 
Who cares? You know, God wants to move through holy vessels. And I know God is very gracious, but we need to be balanced. Again, I don't think every biblical divorce disqualifies a man from being a pastor, but I do think that where there's a man who aspires to be a pastor and he's been divorced, that his situation should be scrutinized before he's allowed to enter into that ministry. John MacArthur said if divorce resulted in a man's inability to lead his family, then there is a disqualification. You see, in looking at the text right here, I think the heart of the text is that he's got to be a one-woman man in that call of purity, in that call of sanctity to marriage. You know, one of the things we know it definitely addresses is sexual sin. Again, and sad to say, something that's rampant, that's prominent in the pulpits today. You know, one of the tragedies of ministry is to see so many pastors falling into sexual sin, and maybe after a couple of slaps on the hands, there he is back in the pulpit. And, you know, I, I personally believe, and I think this text clearly teaches, that if a man falls into sexual sin as a pastor, then he should not be allowed to hold that position any longer. If it was done before he was a Christian, so it's, not, it's a different story. Because what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But, but what ends up happening? And how many times have you seen it? I'm sure you've seen it. Those guys, uh, uh, mega churches, and uh, those televangelists. You know, I've seen it so much. A guy right here down the street, this is what happened. He found a sexual sin with his son's girlfriend. What does he do? He leaves a church. He says he's sorry. Two months later, he starts another church. What in the world are people doing going to a church where a man is doing such things? What happens to the sanctity of this place called the pulpit and that man called the pastor? Again, God can forgive. Don't get me wrong. And God can do that work. But there is a scripture here that says he is to be a one-woman man. And there is an element of purity there. I get appalled when I consider these things. And again, it's not that God can't forgive. He can. And I don't want you guys to be condemned in any way. But we need to make sure we maintain that standard of holiness. You know, John MacArthur said, Some may wonder why Paul begins his list with this quality. And the reason he does it is because this is an area where, above all, leaders seem most prone to fall. The failure to be a one-woman man has put more men out of the ministry than any other sin. It is thus a matter of grave concern. You know, when we look at it from the other side, let's just say you believe, oh, it's no big deal, I can do it, go on, continue in ministry. It does a lot of things, I think, to the position of pastor. One of the things it does is it prevents him from it in the sense that, you know, I know. I know a couple of things, that if I was to fall into sexual sin, number one, my wife would kill me. <laughs> but even before that, I know, I know that I cannot stand here any longer. I know that. 
I tell you what, I love God, I love my wife, and I believe this is where he's called me to. And so with that understanding, there's an element of protection there. But if it's not there, how many guys will fall? See, the main thing is what? Is the scriptures. And what does the Bible say? A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, literally one woman man. And then he goes on to share a few words that kind of are related. The next three words, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior. Temperate speaks of vigilance and uh, self-control. Sober-minded speaks of an individual who is sensible and disciplined. Of good behavior now expresses not only the inward, but also the outward expression of self-control. And so if you're called to be a leader, especially of God's precious people, I remember one time going to pastor's conference, and it really stuck into my mind. He said, you guys, you pastors, you're called to tend to the most precious commodity on planet Earth, and that is the people of God. And so as those with given such a heavy responsibility, we can't be slack, we can't be sloppy, we have to be individuals who in one sense are able to control ourselves. There's that self-mastery. John Stott said, this self-mastery is an indispensable quality of Christian leaders. One guy said, how shall I be able to rule others and lead others if I don't have the power to rule or lead myself? You know, as a, as a, as a pastor, and some of you guys here, you kind of know it as, uh, as leaders, maybe you're there in the business. It's different when you don't have that human supervision necessarily over you. Uh, I remember when I used to work at Vaughn's, and you, just, you could tell the, the different guys because uh, there was one guy, I remember, he was funny. He would always uh, take breaks in the back room, and he'd smoke his cigarette, and he'd read the newspaper. And so I'd say, hey, are you on a break? He's like, no, I'm all right, I'm done. And so, you know, next thing you know, hey, the boss is coming in. Boom, he starts working like crazy, right? Because he's being watched. Well, sometimes as a leader, you're not under that supervision. You're not being watched. Only God is watching you. And there has to be that conviction. There has to be that self-mastery. If I wanted to, I could just come in, and to be honest with you, I could be on Facebook all day, like some of you. No, I'm just joking. I don't do that, right? <laughs> I mean, you go on, and you're on the computer or whatever it is, you know, like Henry said, going to in and out double-doubles, things like that. And God says, no, I want you to get in there. I want you to get to work. I want you to get on your knees. I want you to get into the Word. I want you to clean the back room. I want you to vacuum, whatever it is. But there has to be that element of self-discipline, self-mastery, to where you're sensible, good behavior, sober-minded, you're vigilant. John Stott said leaders are often left for considerable periods unsupervised, so they have to supervise themselves. I mean, this is the call, he goes on to talk about this next attribute in verse 2, that an individual who's aspiring to be a bishop has to be a man who is hospitable. And the Greek word uh, philoxenos, it literally means to love strangers. John MacArthur said it doesn't refer to entertaining friends, it refers to the hospitality, to hospitality of loving strangers. Do you love strangers? 
You're like, well, it depends on how strange they are, right? <laughs> you, know? you know, do you love people you never met, people that are totally different than you? You know, the ability in those days we know, the context spoke about how, you know, the, the, the inns were oftentimes like brothels. So they weren't safe. And so the travelers would come through town. They would need a place to stay. You don't know them sometimes, but you'd open up your home and you were hospitable to them. There's got to be that type of heart. Now, I know times have changed and more than likely you're not going to pick up a hitchhiker, you know, nowadays. But the heart that loves the stranger is the heart of a pastor and his family. And it's okay. You bring him over your house. And, you know, you, like, like, you know, Chuck Smith, you know, he got to know him a little bit. But next thing you know, he's got all these hippies living with him. You guys ever read the story of Keith Green? Keith Green, he had people sleeping in his bathtub, man. (laughs) You're like, no, they might mess up my carpet or whatever. And God said, well, that's okay. You know, this is something that we have to have. Jesus said in Luke 14, he said this. He said to the people who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends and your brothers and your relatives nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. See, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and then he has to be able to teach. Now, while all believers are responsible, pass on truths they have learned in God's word, Not all necessarily have that responsibility or gift for preaching and teaching God's word. To preach and teach God's word is primarily the task of the elders, the pastors. It was for that responsibility that they were actually given to the church. You know, it's interesting, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says pastor-teachers. It's really... The, uh, together. That's their responsibility. And some people don't like that. They're like, hey, I want to go to a church where they show me skits. And I want to go to a church where they, you know, do short Bible studies. You know, like maybe 20 minutes, right? I mean, you can go to the movies and you can sit for how long? Two hours and you watch the movie. What? And then it's hard to sit sometimes through maybe a 40-minute Bible study. But we go back to the Word and I, I think of Paul and how he would teach all night. You know, you go over there, and I, and I know one guy, and I'll just share this with you. He, he rides his bike from West Covina to come to church in the morning. And you go over there in that place, and they're so hungry for God's word that they'll walk for hours, literally hours, to go and hear God's word all day. See, this is our responsibility. Because really, you know, when you go out there and all those other things, um, and you hear them, how do you know they're true? See, when we learn God's word, then we ask God for the power of the Holy Spirit to then go out and to live God's word. Because when you begin to live God's word, then your life will change. You know, a lot of times what ends up happening is people are struggling. And they're just, they're just barely hanging by a thread. And I, and I thank God for his grace in my life. But if that's you and you're getting beat up and knocked around and, you know, you're, you're maybe a lot of times walking in the flesh and you just 
being disciplined, being spanked. The reason is you are not living the word of God. You got to connect the dots. You can't just come to church and expect things are going to be good. You get your brownie points, whatever, because you showed up. You got to live it. You know, and this is important for us. And that's why it's important for us to be able to study it together. As a pastor, he's got to be an individual who's able to teach it. And therefore, he's got to be able to study it. It's a gift that needs to be cultivated. And if you're here today, and let's just say you feel like God's calling you to be a pastor, you know what I encourage you to do? Just read your Bible, man. Just get on your knees and you ask the Holy Spirit to teach you the Bible. You know, and it's cool. Other books are cool. And I'll tell you what, if you want to take classes, that's fine. But there is nothing like you, the Holy Spirit, a cup of coffee, and your Bible, man. And you just start reading through it over and over and over again. You know, I would say uh, some people, they've been Christians for a long time. They never even read the whole Bible. You need the full counsel of God. And I'm telling you this because, you know, I realize this because a lot of times what ends up happening is you start teaching something and you don't understand, you know, the background to it or you don't understand the balance of the entire Bible and you can get legalistic or you can get hedonistic. And what ends up happening is because you've never read the whole Bible. And you start reading the whole Bible and then it's your sword, right? You guys remember uh, Hercules, a hero's only as good as his sword, right? What sword do you have? I'm sure you've watched Star Wars before, right? you got to be able to swing that sword. You know, when the devil came against Jesus, what did Jesus do? He quoted scripture, right? And he didn't just quote it, he lived it. When the devil came to Jesus, he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. And he lived it. That's having your sword, I memorized it, but then when you start living the word, then you're swinging your sword and the enemy flees. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, you got to know it. I pray you'd know it and I pray you memorize it. But it's just there and you're, it's just there kicking it. When you start living it is when you start swinging it. And this is why the church needs pastors and teachers and you guys come to the studies and one of the things about Calvary Chapel and some people don't like it and that's why they don't stay and that's fine but whatever study you come to you're going to be taught the Bible see and I, I tell you what rather than all those little experiences that you go and you find in other churches where people don't get rooted and grounded next thing you know they're like chaff blown away you will stick and you will stay why because you know the word of God and so the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And so this is a guy that's got to be able to teach. Um, doesn't mean that... Because you teach the sixth grade over there in the elementary school down the street that you can be a Bible teacher, it's a different thing. It's a different calling. And so what do we see? A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, 
able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not covetous. You remember when Jesus was on the cross, and so they offered him the wine? Do you guys remember that? When Jesus found out that it was wine, he didn't drink it. Why? Because he didn't want his senses dulled. And leaders need to have the same heart. You know, we can't be given to wine. We can't be addicted to wine. Proverbs 31.4 says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, speaking to Solomon, it is not for kings to drink wine. You know, in the Old Testament, there was a tragic point in Israel's history where her leaders would get drunk. Isaiah had to correct them. In Isaiah 28, verse 7, it says, They have erred through wine. When you read the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter, you read it there in chapter 10, chapter 11, they were killed by God because they offered profane fire. What had happened? They got drunk. And they made decisions that they shouldn't have made. You know, this has a number of ramifications in the world that we live in, especially here in America. You know, what would happen if you guys saw me drinking down the street? I go to Shakey's, get me a pitcher, okay? And so you're all, hey, I like the luncheon buffet. And you head down there and you see me drinking a beer or something. You know, what, what might happen? Make you stumble. You know, and maybe you go and you start getting drunk. Next thing you know, you're like my dad. My dad was an alcoholic. He couldn't control it. He would drink a 12-pack every day. Next thing you know, it leads to other drugs. And, ha- and what ends up happening? Blood is on your hands. See, all these things... And not that the pastor or the leader is to be sinless, but he's got to be blameless. And, and we got to understand the responsibility that we have, you know, and making those decisions. I remember one time I went to a, a wedding, and the guy that did the wedding, he did an okay job. But afterwards, we went to the reception, and this guy got plastered, man. He got really, really drunk. And so, can you imagine, just it's kind of weird, you know, here's the guy, he does the wedding, here we are in the reception, and he's just making some pretty, pretty scandalous moves there on the dance floor, you know? And, 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 and what does it do? It just undoes everything that this man just said. And what ends up happening is those decisions are violated. See, you can't be given to wine And he talks about this right here, not violent, not greedy for money, gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Literally, he speaks right here of a giver of blows. He's not a striker. A leader in the church must not be someone who reacts to difficulty with physical violence. You know, um, it could be you. Maybe you're a guy and you hit your wife. You want to be a pastor? Give me a break. You hit your kids like that? You want to be a pastor? Give me a break. You're ready to throw blows? can't be a pastor. It can't be a striker. A lot of prophets are there for profit. He says, no, it can't be someone who's greedy for money. It has to be an individual who he says who is gentle, and that's mild in temperament and behavior. An individual who's really kind and tender, they're not quarrelsome. They're not contentious. And he says right there in verse 3 that they're not covetous. As a matter of fact, I like what we read. If you guys, let's go over to chapter 6. And I love verse 6. 
where he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. There's the key, you guys. We're not, we're not covetous. Uh, we're content. How many of you guys are there? You're like, you know what? I think I have enough. You got, a lot of us are there. You're like, man, I have enough. I have like 17 pairs of pants, you know, and like, you know, seven pairs of shoes. And, you know, the other day, and I'll tell you guys this, just uh, I'm, finally, I'm finally learning because it took me a long time to learn. But uh, a while back, I had a pair of slippers. I lost one of them. And so I got another pair, but then one of them got ripped up. And so what I was able to do was take one of my old pair of slippers with my new pair of slippers. And it works out, it works out so well. Now, if I was younger, like maybe in my 20s, maybe even my 30s, I would think, oh, I need a new pair of slippers, right? But now, for the, you guys know how when you get older, you're like, what's up with that? You don't need another pair of slippers. This works fine. I tell you what, and the same thing, you know, I love my truck. My truck is, what, 20, 21 years old. I love it. I'm content with it. I don't need a new truck. I don't need a new car payment. Even though my children are embarrassed to drive with me in the truck, <laughs> I'm teaching them what we're learning to be content. But one of the things we see, and I just have to, you know, I remember talking to one guy, and his dad was a, a good businessman, and, and uh, it was his, I'm sorry, his father-in-law. And he told his son-in-law, he said, you know what? I see the way you love Jesus. He wasn't a believer. He said, but I see the way you love Jesus. You know what we should do? We'll start a church. We can make a whole bunch of money that way. And it's true. How many guys out there are making a lot of money? And they're getting rich off the people. And these old ladies, man, they're giving the money, their social security checks. One day they're going to stand before God and they're going to give an account. They're in their $3,000 suits. Right? Crazy. If you're in it for the money, <laughs> let me tell you something, man. You're going to be heading for a hot spot in hell. We can't be in it for the money, you guys. We're, we're content. We're, we're not covetous. We're not greedy. And then look what he says in verse 4 of chapter 3. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And I, when I was reading this right here, I was thinking of the sound of music. You guys remember that movie? I was kind of thinking of that, but I'm like, well, maybe that's overboard. But in the end, I think it's so cool, when an individual knows how to rule his home, and so, and so Paul says that's the qualification for ministry. It's almost like training ground, but it's also proving ground. How do you rule your house? And, and when the children are in submission, it says, with, with all reverence there. And that, and that says a lot. You think about it, for, for those of us that are parents, to have one's children in all submission with reverence mean that it means that dad has done his job in loving his children, in leading his children, in praying for his children, in disciplining his children, in being a consistent example to his children. And all these things are things that leaders and pastors will be called to do in the house of God as well, but for those of you, and you've been experiencing this, and you know this, it's not easy to make people follow you. It's not easy that an individual would want to support you as a leader, as a dad, sometimes as a parent. There's an art, there's a heart to it, to where they know 
that you're called, to where they know that you care. There's a skill and there's a will in the spiritual realm to where you're not shoving, but you're loving. You're not domineering, but you are steering them in the ways of the Lord. And 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 then Paul says, if you can't do it at home, then how in the world do you think you're going to be able to do it in the church? And so what does this do? Well, for some, it might be like, ah, I don't know, this is really difficult. And it challenges us. It challenges us not to be a hypocrite. Because here's the thing. A lot of us, and, and, I, just, and I just say this because I love you guys, man. And it's got to be real. We're one way at church, and we're a completely different person at home. And I just pray that if that's you, that you are not cool with that. But that we would be real. And it starts in the home. See, that's a qualification for ministry. Verse 6, he says, It's not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. It can't be a new believer. Time reveals, time makes clear what we see in an individual. Is there really a maturity there? Putting a new convert into a position of spiritual leadership is apt to pup him up, and we know that was the downfall of Satan, right? So it can't be somebody who's brand new. And then in verse 7, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You know, as a general rule of thumb, you know, your neighbors, you know, he's a good guy. You know, I don't hear him yelling at his wife. I don't see him kicking the dog, you know. He mows his grass. He pays his bills. And the people that you work with, he's a man of integrity. They might not, dis- they might, they might not agree with your theology, and they may get upset with you when you make stands for God. But they know who you are. And, and then Paul is just saying, when you put all this together, this is what I want you to work towards. For Titus chapter 1, it gives us a few more uh, things, and when we cover that, we're going to get there. But the bottom line is, sometimes Christian men are bad witnesses to their extended family. Sometimes Christian men don't pay their bills. Sometimes Christian men are rude and crude and loud and proud at work or with their neighbors. And so he's saying such Christian men bring shame to the name of Christ. In the end, I guess you could say the bottom line is, is they're not, they're not real. And that's all God wants. That's all God wants, you guys. It's not just for pastors. It's for all leaders, uh, parents, Christians. Uh, Gene Getz wrote a book on this, and he, uh, he applied it to all men. And I think it, it's a great book. It's a great read. And for us in the church, I think uh, this whole role, we're going to see next time, Lord willing, probably in a few weeks after Easter, we're going to get back into First Timothy, regarding deacons and just the different roles that these guys have. And together, man, I pray that God would bless this church, whatever church that you end up attending or going to, because we know the word of God. And, you know, if I could just say this, you guys, and I hope I don't sound... Uh, selfish, but pray for your pastor. 
I pray for, I thank God for the guys that God has put in my life since day one. And I'll be honest with you, I pray for them. I pray for them. I pray that God would keep them close to his heart. And they would, they would never, ever, you know, in any way drift away. Because, uh, and I'll close with this, uh, being a pastor, you know, it might not be as easy as you think. A study of clergy revealed that 66% feel lonely um, and isolated. So that's, you know, close to 7 out of 10. They feel that way. 80% uh, feel feelings of futility. And that is, you know, like you go in and, you know, whatever it is, you're giving your earnest effort, but you don't really see lives changed. So that happens a lot. We find 90% suffer from stress due to the problems that they experience, not only themselves personally, but the members of the body of Christ. They say that many are tired. Um, I guess the uh, average work week of a pastor goes somewhere around 60 hours a week. But here's the thing, and this one, I don't know about the others, uh, but this one I do agree with. 95% of them are satisfied. And if God's called you to be a pastor, I'll tell you what, man, it's a blessing. Uh, for me, I thank God for his grace in my life um, because it really is. It really is an amazing life. And so go for it, man. Do what you got to do to answer the call of God upon your life. Okay, Father, we thank you. So much, Lord, for your love and grace in our life. And I pray, Father, that you would uh, forgive me, cleanse me. I pray, Lord, that you would hear me as I lift up your people to you that are going through so many different things. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them with your word today and let there be no condemnation because your word says there is none in Christ. But let there be a challenge for me, for all of us here to rise to the occasion and just to live the life, to live the life that you've called us to live. Father, I pray if there is anyone here today who doesn't know you, who's not a Christian, Lord, that today would be the day that they repent of their sins and they receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the one who died for them on that cross and rose again to save them from hell and give them heaven. Lord, we just thank you so much for the things you're doing. We pray be with us now as we sing, as we go out into the world. Lord, help us to be lights. And I also pray, Father, if there is any here, if there are any here who have that fire, they have that desire to be a pastor, I pray, Lord, you work in their hearts and that you would bring it to pass and that you would use them in a mighty way. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.